Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, August 1st, the year of our Lord, 2021. To put it in the proper context, there are college football games that count in real life this month. We're that close. I got an email from a very, very spirited Hawaii fan the other day that said my name would change from Josh Pate to Josh Late because I'm ignoring that game and will only pay attention after they upset UCLA. That's the spirit of my inbox this week. Also, psychopaths who think I'm the creator of Outer Banks have filled my inbox this week. But it has been a spirited week nonetheless. We're jam-packed tonight. This is the last week of our two-show-per-week format. So this time next week, we will be flipping the switch. Colin, I don't know where the switch is, but we flip it, and we go to three shows per week. Sunday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. And we've got Camp Whispers and Intel. we got Ramen Noodle Express. <laughs> Gave me chill bumps just saying it. we got Ramen Noodle Express coming. We have got... Grand season previews. We've got all sorts of stuff coming to pack into a month. Some would say it's not possible. I may agree with them, but we're going to try anyway. Tonight, the next domino to fall. We've talked about conference alignment and realignment. I've gotten kind of tired of talking about it, so we've got to talk about it from some different angles. And also, I'm going to sort of kick it off with an addressing of sorts of some of the popular talking points out there. And I'll just leave it at that. We'll circle back to that in a second. Title contenders are vulnerable this year, especially early in the season. We will discuss Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Earlier today, I asked you, first four weeks of the season, over, under, those three teams losing a combined one and a half games. And most of you think under. So most of you think either two of them or all three of them are going to be undefeated coming out of September. I may disagree. So we will discuss this evening. Fall camps open this week. That's really what I should have led the show with. Fall camps are opening this week. By Friday or Saturday, most teams will be in fall camp. There are some areas of focus. We won't even come close to scratching the surface of getting to all of it tonight, but we will at least start to scratch the surface tonight. All of that, and we are going a radically different direction, I think it's safe to say, for the end of the show. But I came to a realization the other day about Jim Harbaugh and his time at Michigan and what it perfectly parallels in the cinematic world. And it's frightening, so frightening that you may actually think his tenure at Michigan has been written by a Hollywood casting director. One thing that I want to throw out there before we start tonight, because we have a jam-packed show, is I put out the call to action last week. I want to be fair. I'm going to put it in a few shows so as many people as possible have a chance. As you know, we have an entire army of volunteers that help out behind the scenes for the show during the season. If you want in on that, there are several areas that I need help in. And uh, those of you who participated last year know what it's about. I need you to be able to dedicate a few hours per week. This is strictly volunteer. It is for love of the game. I've got like 20 or 25 of you already. If you want in on that, joshpate706 at gmail.com. And let me give you three areas that I'm looking for that I have not designated yet. If you're good at animation or graphic design, if you are a master in the world of TikTok, and if you understand marketing. I'll keep it generic. 
hit me up. JoshPate706 at gmail.com. Also, Twitter, Instagram, blowing up. Keep them growing. At LateKickJosh. Didn't disappoint this week. I would suffice it to say, if you were following me there, didn't disappoint this week. You had to have been there. I can't sum it up now. So at LateKickJosh. Okay. Let's hit the reset button on all this. We know what we've been talking about with conference realignment. We know Texas and Oklahoma are going to the SEC. All that is sort of in one way in the rearview mirror, and in another way it's still on the horizon because they're not officially there yet. But we know all that, so I'm not going to take tonight and restate the obvious. So let's dive in here. Conference realignment, the future of college football, expanded playoff, why not throw it in there? All-encompassing, what does this mean? You know, when we talk about this stuff, as we have a great deal lately, it elicits a very wide range of emotions. I have observed there are really kind of four different compartments you could fit into. Compartment number one is the all-change-is-good crowd, and anyone who argues you're just anti-progress, confusing change and progress all the time. Uh, Compartment number two is I'm okay with change, but it's just a case-by-case basis, And in this case, I'm cool with the change. Let's realign these conferences. Let's go wherever it's going to take us. There's a third group of people, and those people are also okay with change on a case-by-case basis, but they're not on board with these particular changes. That's where yours truly resides. And then group four is just take me back to leather helmets. Most of you fit into one of those compartments, and I have noticed that a lot of you are in compartment one or compartment two. And so there's a funny thing that I have observed happening from the compartment one and two crowd towards the compartment three crowd. Now, the leather helmet crowd, that's a little bit different. But those of you who are all about any kind of change in college football or those of you who are careful towards change, but you're on board with this particular version of it, you've tended to look at those of us in group three who are resistant to a lot of what's happening right now for the sake of, as we would tell you, the betterment of college football and preserving the tradition of college football And you look at it and you make fun of it the same way you would your grandpa's teeth falling into a bowl of porridge. And that's not always the way it is. I don't think it is the way it is right now. Having set the framework, this week, Kirk Herbstreet goes on SportsCenter. As all of this is unfolding, and he goes on SportsCenter and he says, I've got the quote here, actually. You know what? Let me pull it up. There we go. So Kirk Herbstreet does a sports center hit this week amidst all the conference realignment chaos. And he says, and I quote, I hate losing the tradition of the sport. I've always been, I guess, naive to it. I've tried to be the guy who thinks people care about tradition and rivalries. Clearly, the decision makers don't. It's an arms race and it's all about money. You've probably heard several people talk like that. Me, chief among them. I feel the exact same way Kirk Herbstreet does about this and said as much publicly this week. And here's the response you get. The like-minded among you just cheer it on. But the ones in group one and two, the ones who are all about change or either they're somewhat all about change but they're on board with this, they tend to make statements that are almost demeaning in nature. And I know good and well if you've been paying attention, you've watched this. If you're against these changes in college football, there is a certain portion of what I call the college football public that's out there that would almost assume an intellectual high ground on you, even though they don't hold it. And they assume the intellectual high ground by saying stuff like, you better get ready for it because it's coming whether you like it or not, which is essentially the equivalent of standing on the Titanic as it's going down. I like to think one dude amongst all of the thousands there that night stood there and looked at everyone panicked, looking for a spot on a lifeboat or a wayward table somewhere, and they just laughed at him and said, y'all better get used to the idea this thing's sinking because it's going down. 
Yeah, it was. You don't have to be happy about it. You don't have to cheer it on. Like, I think everyone with sane mind can see the changes happening there and in a more subtle, but also in our own way, radical concept in college football. There is a complete changing of the tide here. Everyone can see it. Everyone understands what it's about. You're not breaking any new news to me when you tell me this is about money. This is about power and consolidating it. Everyone gets that, man. We've gone through third grade economics. We've watched the movie Wall Street. Everyone understands how it works. We aren't on board with it is the only difference, at least those of us who think like that. And as I kind of summed it up the other day, it's not ignoring the realities of life to push back against the changes that are happening, some of which at least right now in college football. It's not ignoring the realities of life to push back on money being the key driver at the forefront of seemingly every decision. As I said the other day, I get how that works. Someone like Herc Herbstreet, when he goes on SportsCenter and says, I want to be naive. I want to think it's about tradition and the rivalries and the pageantry and maintaining the fabric of this sport, this one American sport that's different than all the rest. Folks like that aren't ignorant. I'm not ignorant to this. He's not ignorant to that. We get it, just don't like it. It's the preserve mentality. As I told you, again, in the entire city, if you will, of American sports over the last several decades, We've had the preserve in place. We've had the checks. We've had the balances. We've had the mechanisms in place that preserve college football relative to the direction pretty much every American sport has gone. Not perfectly, not even close to perfectly, but perfect enough for us to still appreciate it. And then all of a sudden, you watch it start to be eroded away, and you watch that preserve start to be torn down, and that's all that's ever kept it from being unique and what we love. It's not ignorance to look and say, boy, I hate that this is happening. It's just an appreciation for something, and it's a passion for something. Loving the tradition and pageantry of college football is not a bad thing. And just because you push back against someone trying to take a sledgehammer to it, that's not a bad thing. You also don't have to demonize the people that are responsible for the change because, again, if you could see the whole iceberg, for all I know, I'd be making the same decisions they were. So it sounds kind of hypocritical when you speak out of one side of your mouth, I'm speaking about me here, and you say, I wish we could maintain everything that we love about this. But then I also say out of the other side of my mouth, maybe I'd do the same thing if I were Greg Sankey. It's, it's hypocritical if he has a bunch of options, or if I had a bunch of options, if I were in his position. I don't know the whole story. I am smart enough to say I don't know. Know when you don't know and be able to say it. If he has a bunch of options and Greg Sankey is sitting there and he's got multiple switches in front of him and he's pushing the death switch for college football, that's one thing. But if he understands the full picture and he sees things and has scope and breadth that we can't have and understands there is an inevitability here, I have to position my conference in its best interest moving forward. That's another thing which kind of brings me to what's about to happen. So we know what's already happened. There is a thought out there that it's just inevitable. At this point, the SEC is going through a 30-team super conference. Well, no, it's not. It's not inevitable. Here's how I know. If they wanted to, they could do it by daybreak tomorrow. They could pull the lever if they wanted to, and they could bring, you would be shocked at who they could bring on board by this time tomorrow if they wanted to. What I believe Greg Sankey is doing, you're looking at pictures of him right here, is I believe he understands they had the power in the SEC to take preemptive measures to best position themselves for the long game. I'm not discounting that it's a possibility that 30-team super conference scenarios where we end up. What I am confidently telling you is I don't think they've made any kind of decision. Oftentimes, when you're watching these huge arcing decisions play out, 
there's this mentality that there's a grand master plan and everything's already mapped out 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road, and they're just going by the schematic. And if you've ever run an organization, if you've ever planned a multi-leveled operation even, uh, if you've built a house, if you've planned a road trip, you know how it works. Really what happens is you plan the first few steps, but there's a point on there where you put down the pen and you pick up the pencil and you start gently mapping out the rest and you leave room to adjust because you know there are a lot of variables out there that even if you have 50,000 foot perspective, you could not possibly see. That's where Sankey is and he's got the best seat in the house right now. It's not inevitable that the SEC goes anywhere past 16. It's possible which means nothing more than he's done exactly what he's supposed to do, given the landscape shifting, and that's position his conference. Okay, I'm not running a Greg Sankey fan club. I'm just also not lining up outside his home with torches and pitchforks quite yet. But the question's not about the SEC at the moment to me. The question's about the Big Ten. The Big Ten, whether they know it or not, is the next big player in the room. And Fox is the next big player in the room. And there's a lot of unrest in both neighborhoods tonight. But it doesn't have to be that way because they got a lot of cachet and they got a lot of sway moving forward. But the question, unlike the SEC and the Big Ten, is who's really driving the bus? I don't think you're ready to look at me and say Kevin Warren. I don't think anyone up there is comfortable saying that, nor do I think it would be reality. I think there are probably a few influential figures that are going to have to be in lockstep agreement. Now, the reason I have trepidation, if I'm looking out for the Big Ten's best interest right now, is... I remember the last time these people tried to operate in lockstep agreement, and it was one of the biggest public catastrophes that you'll ever see from a PR perspective. It was, what, about this time last year as I look at the imaginary watch? And all they had to do was get on board with messaging as to why they were postponing a season. They couldn't even do that. All they had to do is get on board with how a vote turned out. They couldn't even do that. Imagine trying to restructure your conference. Imagine trying to add member institutions. Imagine also maybe unlike the SEC, trying to juggle the prioritization of athletics and academics. And one side wants it weighted 80-20 this way, and another side wants it weighted 80-20 that way. Then you understand what we call the classic conundrum that the Big Ten could be in. I really hope they make a move. It was awful quiet up there. I got a text last night that I just tweeted out verbatim from someone who would know a lot more than me. They said, it's awful quiet up here. They put the winky emoji. I didn't include that. I didn't want to be weird. But that's where the Big Ten stands. But then also, that's not all that's out there, is it? I haven't even mentioned the ACC. I haven't even mentioned the Pac-12. I certainly haven't mentioned the American, which I think quietly is sneaking around in the tall grass, about as ready to pounce relative to what their normal position has been in the sport as anyone is. But I think the lingering question, it's not going to get answered this week or this year, for conferences like the Pac-12, I really loved what the commissioner out there, the new commissioner said. Now, I haven't learned to pronounce his last name, but that doesn't mean I don't like what he said out there. He was very clear in his messaging. If you haven't, judging by the numbers, most of you haven't, gone and watched Pac-12 Media Day, go and watch his introductory press conference and listen to how clear he was. It was crystal clear, the vision. He wasn't scared to prioritize football. He wasn't scared to say, we've got to make it a point to emphasize football. It's not like we're going to give the middle finger to all the other Olympic sports out here, but we got to be clear about what drives the bus. He also was very clear in saying, we got to do everything we can to get our teams in the playoff, even though some of the measures I may not agree with. I also think they're going to turn the scheduling model upside down out there. Anyway, what I'm saying is, I think a lot of the new initiatives and the new mentality in the Pac-12 is good. 
Could it be coming at a worse time? No. But if they can survive and stave off fundamental alterations to the conference, the long game here is waiting for new media players to come to the table. See, right now, you read work over on any of several websites, and all the talk is about ESPN makes their move, Fox makes a counter move, and maybe there's another network in there somewhere. But the thing that you're watching for in that maybe and then the blank is for a name to pop up that's not on the tip of anyone's tongue. Could be one of the streaming giants. You know, what Amazon is today for you when it comes to football is not going to be what they are in 2026. Likewise, with any of a number of other streaming giants. And you never know what merger happens between now and then. And so you never know what the platform looks like and what the landscape looks like. But just like Greg Sankey did with his league, you have to take it upon yourself and be aggressive in doing so to get positioned in the best possible manner you can so that you benefit. Because what you don't want to do is get to 2026 and as opposed to just an A-B scenario, you get A, B, C, and D as options out there. And all of a sudden, there's a massive infusion of cash into the media market, but you've already folded up shop. That's what the Big 12 is probably on the precipice of unfortunately having no option other than to do. The Pac-12 is a little bit better off currently. Uh, the ACC certainly is, but you just got to get yourself in position. So there's still a lot of unknown. I'd be lying, as would anyone else, if they came on air and said, I got this down to a T. Here's the way it's going to happen. Exciting times, uh, frustrating times, concerning times, uh, but interesting times nonetheless. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's talk about some college football this year. Let me pull this up. There we go. Okay. National championship contenders are a lot more vulnerable early in the season this year, this 2021 season, than I think a lot of folks in the preview magazine culture realize. I know Bama and Ohio State and Clemson, they're all going to be favored probably to go 12-0, I think. Yeah, all will be favored in every game they play this year. And you remember how last season ended. The last thing you saw was Alabama looking like a machine. And up until they played Bama, the last thing you remember was Ohio State similarly looking like a machine. And the last thing until Clemson played Ohio State, you remember, is the Clemson Tigers looking like a machine. This is not last year. And it never is. But I just want to caution you, especially those of you who are looking to gamble on this sport, let the Ramen Noodle Express give you a fair word of caution. Uh, these are not teams that are about to open with a bunch of 30 and 35 point spreads early in the season. So here's the question. We're going to take a little dive into the hypothetical waters tonight. I want to repeat, Colin, sometimes we have to do this. Let me repeat. Let me get a little bit closer to the mic. I'm going to dive into the hypothetical waters tonight. What I'm about to say, these are not predictions. These are just things to keep in mind. I want to arm you with as much information as you could possibly have. What could trip Alabama up? If they were to have, we're talking first month of the season here. What could trip Alabama up? Well, let me be clear about my expectations for Alabama since we haven't done the season preview yet. I do not expect some buzzsaw offense, at least to begin the year, for them. Totally unrealistic to think like that. I would much rather them prove me wrong and overachieve relative to that expectation than me sit here and tell you, oh, I don't care if Bryce Young's never started a game and they got 14 out of 15 new options out of just 11 players on the field offensively. Oh, they'll all be fine. They're going to do offensive coordinator too. They'll be fine. Uh, no, no. They will stumble at times early on. The fortunate aspect for Nick Saban is he'll stumble with a ton more talent than you even hit your groove with. And secondly, I think the defense is going to be more than capable of balancing things out for him. But there will be a lot of attention paid to Bryce Young. There will be a lot of attention paid to the running back position. Obviously, you're breaking in multiple new receivers. 
But I want to focus for just a second on their offensive line because, you see, they're losing three very, very integral multi-year starter pieces off the Joe Moore award-winning offensive line. Leatherwood's gone. Deontay Brown's gone. I think Dickerson was one of the most underrated players in all of college football last year, and he's gone too. So you're not just replacing talent there. You're replacing cohesion, which is always important on an offensive line, but the leadership aspect, which is not quantifiable in any kind of statistical breakdown you'll see, that's also something that's a void that's got to be filled. They don't lack options, but we're not talking about November when they've hit their stride. I'm talking about early in the year. So their first six weeks, they'll be favored probably by double digits in every one of these games, but there are some spots here where you better bring it or you could find your lip bloody and a tie ball game in the fourth quarter. You obviously know they open against Miami. They go to Florida in week three. They have Ole Miss, rested Ole Miss team, a couple of weeks later in Bryant-Denny Stadium. And then they go to Texas A&M the very next week. None of these are cakewalks. At least they shouldn't be at the beginning of a game. Final score may make it look differently. But two things to think about with Bama early in the year. Think about all the new on offense. Quarterback, running back, wide receiver, offensive line, offensive coordinator, The thing to focus on with them that you got so comfortable with last year as a Bama fan is ball security. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is that timing and rhythm where they almost looked like a video game last year, especially after the first few weeks of the season, that timing and rhythm, all that newness withstanding, also with the new pieces on that offensive line, when you face some of the talent, especially on the defensive fronts they'll face in these first six or so weeks of the season, they will not face a team that matches them man for man. They will face some teams that can make it tough matchup-wise for them up front if that offensive line does not round into the form you're used to seeing Alabama play at early enough. That's what could trip Alabama up. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move to Ohio State. What could trip Ohio State up this year? Before we even talk about them tripping up, there is something happening right now. It's sort of quiet on the national landscape. Ohio State fans are talking about it nonstop. It's about to be the biggest story in college football, at least for August, I think, at least when it comes to on-field matters. Quinn Ewers is very likely to transfer Well, not transfer. I guess you don't transfer from high school. Quinn Ewers is very likely to leave high school early, which was already a headline, and enroll at Ohio State. But a lot of you out there are, I think, misinterpreting what that means. You think he's going to leave early, and so he can soak up all that NIL money, and then he'll be on campus in the spring like a normal early enrollee. That's not what he's doing. 
Um, again, this is not finalized, but there are multiple folks out there close to the Ohio State program who would lead you to believe Quinn Ewers is not only highly likely to be at Ohio State this year, he's likely to be there sometime in fall camp and eligible to play this year. Now, you may look at Ohio State and say, big deal. They're loaded at quarterback. They are. He's as good as anyone they have. It's very rare to say that about a high school guy, especially one that's going to skip his senior year of high school. I don't know what to tell you. Look up Quinn Ewers if you don't know what I mean. He's like a 25-year-old man. Full-grown 25-year-old man, not, not your mailman. A full-grown 25-year-old man. Legendary mullet, legendary arm that you will come to know if you don't already. And so I was over on Buttnuts earlier today. I was looking at Dave Biddle and some of the guys talking about this. It's kind of a new concept. No one really knows what to make of it. And I was reading Biddle over there, and this does not surprise me at all, saying, listen, truth be told, the Ohio State staff's not all that thrilled about this. They're not about to hit the brakes on it. Remember, they flipped him. This is the number one quarterback in America for this 2022 cycle. They flipped him from Texas. He's from Texas to begin with. And so think about what all that could mean. Okay, now you've seen this stuff and what it, well, you haven't seen anything quite like this, but you've seen what drama, if you let it become that, at the quarterback position sometimes does to a locker room, which is the ultimate test of your culture. Because I believe in Ohio State's culture. So I'm going to tell you my personal thought here is, I believe that they're going to be able to weather that and withstand that, and it's going to be a lot of noise. But the thing about Ryan Day and the culture they've built up there is you can quiet the noise with culture. Not outside, but what people are saying outside doesn't matter internally, again, if you have the culture to quiet the noise. Now, I think they have that. But again, we're playing hypotheticals here. What could trip them up? So then once you think about that, you look at the schedule and realize, oh, they're not opening with two directional schools. They're going to Minnesota on a Thursday night to open the year, and then they're coming home to play Oregon. Make no mistake about it. Those are two losable games. Now, how would they trip up? Well, I think the way they trip up against Minnesota is very simple. They're taking a whole lot of young guys, ultra-talented, but young guys on the road. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, and I believe it will be C.J. Stroud starting at Minnesota, and that place, we assume, full or close to full, None of those dudes, none of these young guys, first or second year guys, have played in any kind of environment like that or even close to that. So you got your normal early season, on the road, jitters kind of issues for your young guys, and you're leaning on a lot of them at the most functional portions of your team, the most hinged portions of your team, quarterback, Travion Henderson if he's playing running back for you. And so there's that. But then also, if you look up and down Minnesota's roster, they got a lot of older guys quarterback comes back. They got the whole offense coming back, essentially. I think one receiver. Other than that, they got the whole offense coming back, and they got a big offensive line, and they got a really, really good running back, one of the best players on their team. And what that could do to you is, especially if they pop you for a couple of turnovers early and they jump up on you, you know, they're leading you 10 to nothing, even though they've put up 25 yards of total offense. It's the kind of offense that can shave a couple of possessions off the end of the game with their ability to control clock. That's the way they could trip up. Now, Oregon, on their own merit, is a good enough team to match up in week two, a little bit better passing game probably from Oregon. But that's how Ohio State would trip up. Now, with Clemson, I think it's a lot more self-explanatory because if you look at Clemson's schedule, we're talking about Georgia. Maybe we're talking about at NC State in, what is it, week four? I mean, all due respect to South Carolina State, I don't expect a big pushback from them. And listen, Georgia Tech... We're fans of Georgia Tech here, but it would be a surprise if Jeff Collins and company were able to go into Death Valley and win that game in week three. 
But it's not hard for me to envision Georgia pulling the outright upset over Clemson, even though the Tigers should be favored and are favored to start the season in that game. I think it sits around four right now. But again, there is a tendency when we do these breakdowns, especially for week one, because people have too much time on their hands, there is a tendency to go offensive line versus offensive line, wide receiver versus wide receiver, which is always ludicrous because the units are never on the field at the same time. But even if you do the wide receivers versus DB, offensive line versus defensive line, football comes down to a couple of bounces of the ball, and it also comes down to a few inches, and then it comes down to probably a few ISO matchups more so than anything. And when you look at Georgia and what they're going to trot out there on their defensive line, it really just their front in general, and you look at what you would call, relatively speaking, the wink link of Clemson's team, it reminds me a lot of what happened in the Super Bowl. Let me stress, because what are we, about 10 minutes into this segment? This is not a prediction, purely hypothetical. But remember, when you were, if you remember the Super Bowl, you're watching the Bucks and the Chiefs, uh, Kansas City's favored in the game, and yet it becomes apparent very early on there's just a glaring mismatch up front. And Kansas City's offensive line is a sieve, and they cannot handle what Tampa's bringing. Final score's 31-9, to nine, and it's, not, it's just not competitive at the end of the day. And very early on, Patrick Mahomes realizes that, and everything's out of whack. Everything's out of sync. And Mahomes, is, at this point, is a veteran. Well, I look at DJ Oyangalale. I got all the confidence in the world in that guy. I look at pretty much every other facet of Clemson's team, and I've got all the confidence in the ceiling potential of those units. The offensive line, that's the area. And it really doesn't take a five-on-five mismatch. It takes your center and or your right guard being a little vulnerable. And you look at the small houses that Georgia has on the interior of their defensive line, if they break that stuff down, if they're able to collapse their pocket from internally, I'll tell you what really takes away the mystery of is how Clemson will go about attacking them to start the game. Watch how many quick perimeter passes Clemson runs. Watch how many quick screens or bubbles that they run to start that game. A lot like Auburn did to attack Bama a couple of years ago when they beat him in Jordan-Hare. If you know you got a mismatch there, you got to attack him on the perimeter. Because that coincides with what will probably be a matchup advantage that Clemson has over Georgia. So anyway, that's just some fun hypothetical stuff. Obviously, uh, when game week gets here, we'll be breaking down all those. But it is the week for fall camp to start. Do you realize this? Where are you right now? If you're a Michigan State fan or an Arizona fan or or an Alabama fan, hey, fall camp is about to start this week. And so here's what we do when we get into fall camp. We do whispers and intel, and essentially what that means is I get on the iJosh until the battery dies, and I hit up all of our insiders from our various teams and networks across the country, and we just gather as much juice and intel and dirt as we can, and we package it all up into one segment. That's what you'll get on the show every show we do in August, except for this one because camp hasn't started. So what I did want to do is I did still reach out to some people, and I'm going to echo some of the sentiment that they shared with me. Fall camp opening this week, though, what are we watching? Well, first thing I want to do is I'm going to start in the state of Florida. And let's go with the big three. This is no knock on UCF, but we're talking Power Five here. The big three in Florida, whether it's the Gators, whether it's the Canes, whether it's the Knowles, the quarterback spots with all these teams, bear close watching. Don't care if you're a fan of them or not. Think about where we are here because all these are going to set, set certain parameters for these division races. With Florida State, Mackenzie Milton is a guy we talked about a lot in the spring. We'll be talking about him a lot in fall camp. Mackenzie Milton and this entire quarterback situation at Florida State, because Jordan Travis has been there. Jordan Travis is a guy, he may, for all I know, he may get the first team reps when they open camp. 
But Mackenzie Milton's ultimately the guy that we have chosen to bet on on this show. Now, that assumes the health of that knee. And it assumed it in spring, but in spring, it was a little bit different ball game, obviously, than you get into more live bullets action in the fall. This is where that whole 100% moniker really gets tested. You can, be, you can tell me you're 100% spring all you want to, or that you will be come fall all you want to. This is where it matters. That's going to be something to check on every single day, because who starts number one in fall camp may not be the guy ultimately taking the snaps when they open against Notre Dame in week one. In Gainesville, it's not a great mystery who's going to start at quarterback for Florida. The great mystery is how effective he's going to be. Emory Jones is obviously going to be starting quarterback for Florida. This is such a golden opportunity because it's that rare situation where you are quarterbacking a team that's coming off a division championship. They went to a New Year's Six Bowl game, and yet not a lot is expected of them on the national scene. And by the way, you're not a true freshman, which is an important thing to remember with Emory Jones. You equate first-year starter to really, really young guy most of the time. And if you listen to Dan Mullen when he was doing his rounds at SEC Media Days the other day, he made a point. I mean, it's really smart, but it's really basic. He said, you know, this guy has played so much that if you were to just look at his stat sheet, you would think he's a multi-year starter because they've put him in games uh, even when the other quarterback is healthy. But one thing Mullen brought up that I had forgotten, uh, to be honest with you, until he brought it up was two years ago. I was on the field down in Gainesville for this game. They had Auburn in there. And they beat Auburn, but it was early to midway through the first half. Um, who, man, who, who was starting their quarterback for him? Was it Franks? I think it may have been Franks. Uh, anyway, whoever was at quarterback for him at the time, Trask or Franks, goes down, and it looks bad. I mean, I'm standing right there. I, I can hear the screams. It's one of the worst things you can hear when you're on the field. And so I think that Florida has just lost their starting quarterback for the season. And so I'm focused on starter walking off field into tunnel. I'm checking the phone. I'm trying to get updates from people watching at home. And meanwhile, Emory Jones is just leading him down the field. And eventually you find out, well, your starting quarterback's not going to be lost for the year, but that's something you tuck away. And Dan Mullen mentioned it the other day. He said, you know, we, we kind of, we never forgot that. When we put him in with, with no advance notice, he ran the offense like he was a starting quarterback and he's been ready to do it for a while. Well, if all that's true, and if Emory Jones plays to the level that they believe he's capable of playing to, Florida becomes competitive in, in every game they play. I know you don't expect them to beat Alabama. And let's even if you want to play devil's advocate and chalk that one up as a loss, they go to LSU. If, if Emory Jones is playing at a high level as a quarterback, they can beat LSU. They can compete with them. They can beat Georgia. They can compete with them. So if they can do that, they can compete for the Eastern Division is what I'm saying. And in Miami, Derek King is another one of these cases where you've been told, and I've been told for a majority of spring and summer, he will be 100%. Now those numbers, again, they don't mean anything in spring. But when you hear Derek King will be 100%, this is when I need it to be true. They open against Alabama. We've talked about the opening half of the season for Miami. They're going to play Bama, and then for your national purposes, they're going to kind of disappear off the radar maybe, and then reemerge in, I think it's week five or six against North Carolina. And that's probably where you'll see them again. Uh, but they got a shot to do something here now. They were a lot better than I think a lot of you remember in terms of passing efficiency last year. And they've got a chance to upgrade that again this year. Again, if you've got a healthy Derek King and if they can do everything that they want to do with him, running the full offense, 
is the name of the game here. I don't doubt he can stand in the pocket and deliver the ball. What you see him doing, if you're watching on YouTube right now, that is an integral part of his game and an integral part of what they need him to do, that being running. But I'm also looking at the rest of their quarterback depth. you got a guy in Jake Garcia there, obviously, big name. And then you've also got Tyler Van Dyke. And this is another situation where the guy who's taken the number two reps may in all likelihood, well, not likelihood, may possibly not end up being the guy who is your true number two this year. So there's a lot of shuffling that I think still is left to go on there. I also want to talk about the Alabama running back group because we can't just focus on quarterbacks all day. Uh, Bama's got a new quarterback, but we all know who's starting there. But the Alabama running back group, I think will be emphasized more in general this year. You watch Najee Harris walk out the door, but they're still so loaded. They're so loaded that Keelan Robinson, who I think would start for 90% of America, saw fit to transfer to Texas. And with him out the door and Najee out the door, you've still got Brian Robinson there. And then you got Trey Sanders there. And then you got Jace McClellan there. And then you got Roy Dell Williams there. And so I didn't even mention Kamar Wheaton, who's a five-star running back coming in in this class. So they're so overly, abundantly loaded at running back, but that doesn't mean that they just have the piece to fill the shoes of Najee Harris. So two things to watch here. Number one, I think the running back position is going to be a lot more involved early in the season, or at least leaned on and depended on a lot more early in the season. The ball security issue, always a situation you watch with young guys, and then we've talked about the replacements on the offensive line, knew everything on offense. But the thing that Najee Harris used to set himself apart and he's not shy about telling you about it, is his ability as a pass catcher, his ability out of the backfield. And it didn't matter if he got the ball in his hands every play. Defensive coordinators knew going into a game against Alabama, we have to account for him in the passing game. This is why, with all due respect to Brian Robinson, the efficiency needed at running back for Alabama in the passing game is why I think Jace McClellan stands to burst on the scene nationally this year about as much as any player on any one of these contending teams. I love the guy out of high school. Anytime he was on the field last year, he was impressive. I think he is the most complete package kind of guy that Alabama has at running back right now. Brian Robinson is a phenomenal talent. He's paid his dues. He, he earned the ability and the right to be listed with the ones there, and I assume will be when fall camp opens. But Jace McClellan, Roydell Williams is another good one. I'm very interested to see what Trey Sanders has. Uh, he was on track to do a lot of good things before he got injured and was out for a year. But Jace McClellan's a name to circle there. Stay at the running back position, but let's go up the road to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I bet many of you who have watched all spring and summer can probably guess where I'm going here. Ty Chandler used to play at Tennessee. He doesn't anymore. Ty Chandler has landed in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. There's a lot of assumption that's probably made at this point about North Carolina. They're in many people's preseason top 10, most people's preseason top 15. And so you assume, unless you've done a deep dive on the team, you may look at North Carolina and you may assume, well, offense is what it is there. They can just autopilot that thing. Defense is really what could make or break them this year. And I'm not arguing with you. Obviously, defense will make or break a lot of teams. But don't just assume things about their offense. You know Sam Howell's name. How many other names do you know on that offense if you're not a Tar Heel fan? And so the names that you did know last year, Javante Williams, Michael Carter, two studs in the backfield, both depart. Now, they're talking about this nonstop at North Carolina, but nationally, I don't think as many people are really aware of this right now. Ty Chandler has a golden opportunity here. Ty Chandler 
could make as big a splash out of the transfer portal as any player in America because he is being asked to be a bell cow workhorse running back in an offense. He's built for it. Physically, I think he can stand up to it. But also, I don't say this very often, but this is their most important hinge player outside of quarterback. This is a hinge player for them. North Carolina cannot fulfill their immense potential and the ability to contend for a division title if you don't get what you are planning to get out of Ty Chandler. That's how important he is offensively for them. They're replacing wide receiver talent. I think they can do that. But man, they got to get a full, healthy, productive year out of him. And I think they will. If he stays healthy, I don't have a doubt about the production. But I think it's a name that a lot more people are going to come to realize is a big, big player in the ACC this year when the season starts. And then how about this one? The Tennessee quarterback room. If you want to bet on some position groups, there's a lot of virtual even money in the Tennessee quarterback room right now. I understand not a lot of you have been following Tennessee this spring. Okay, but here's some numbers for you. They had 29 players enter the portal. 29. One one period. Almost said the O word. They themselves picked up 10 Power 5 transfers. So you better study your depth chart and roster early and often in Knoxville this year. It is a four-man battle at quarterback for Tennessee right now, and that is with Salter exiting, and that's with Jarrett Garantano exiting. They would have had half a dozen otherwise. So they got four guys up there. And this is a rare situation where there are four names in a quarterback battle, and you could paint a realistic picture for any one of them winning the job. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Harrison Bailey. We're talking about Brian Maurer. Those are names that you've known up there for a while. Hendon Hooker comes in by way of Virginia Tech, and Joe Milton comes in by way of Michigan. Now, the smart money amongst Tennessee fans right now makes this a Harrison Bailey versus Joe Milton battle. Milton was not on campus in the spring. He was at Michigan. He transferred in the summer. And so think about that. Say it out loud. The smart money is potentially on a guy that has not taken an organized snap with this team yet. Doesn't always spell disaster. Uh, It's certainly not the most ideal situation to be in. But if I were to take a straw poll of Tennessee fans, now to be close, uh, but but you'd have a 60-40 potentially of people thinking Joe Milton is going to be the guy who wins this job. Now, here's the funny thing I'm watching, because I am not at all there yet. In fact, I would still I would still slightly lean Harrison Bailey, but, I mean, 51-49. That's what I mean by slight. The reason I haven't given up at all on Harrison Bailey is because I know that he was in prison last year. Not literally, but playing on the offensive side of the ball for Tennessee last year was its own kind of football prison. And so Joe Milton played at Michigan, who uh, was not lighting the world on fire, but they at least showed his arm talent and his capability. At Tennessee, you really didn't get to see a whole lot of that with Harrison Bailey. And I think a lot of benefit of the doubt is being given to Joe Milton. And a lot of people are thinking, boy, if he could do that at Michigan, imagine what he can do under Josh Heupel. And the same benefit of the doubt is not always being given to Harrison Bailey. We remember what the scouting report was on him coming out of high school. We remember hearing good things about him in camp. We didn't see anything from him under a Jeremy Pruitt, Jim Chaney regime. Who have we seen a lot from under those two, at least offensively? And so I give the same benefit of the doubt to Harrison Bailey. I know he's got skill. I know he's got potential, so I'm not writing him off. Uh, And really, I'm not writing off the other two either. But those are some things to watch in fall camp. That is a very surface-level view of the deep dive and and a lot more meat-on-the-bone type tangible information we'll have when it comes time for camps to open. Okay, 
Let me stretch. Let me get comfortable. Because where we're about to take the show, we've never taken it before. I got a cramp in my leg now. Hip flexor, Colin, the worst. So Michigan football has not been talked about the whole show. I have not talked about Michigan at length for the better part of a month. That was a promise to a buddy. The moratorium is over. Eventually the season was going to get here, and eventually we were going to have to talk about Michigan. I was thinking the other day, as I was watching the movie Twister, which is, for my money, one of the greatest pieces of American cinema ever created. But then I had it in the back of my mind, and I was working on some Michigan stuff the other day, and it came to me that Jim Harbaugh has been living out the plot to Twister for his entire tenure at Michigan. If you remember Bill Paxton and Twister, and you remember that story arc, you need only apply it to Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, and you realize these are the same people. One's real, one's a character, but these are the same people. And if you have never seen Twister, shame on you. Do yourself a favor. If you have seen Twister, I want you to sit back for a second wherever you are. If you're driving around, don't close your eyes, but take yourself with me on a little journey for the next few minutes, and I want you to think about how uncanny the parallels are between Bill Paxton and Twister and Jim Harbaugh, real-life Uncle Jim at the University of Michigan. And this story does not have a conclusion to it. You know how Twister ends. We don't know how the Michigan story ends. First point, do you remember at the beginning of Twister, Bill returns. He's gone off to be a weatherman. He's left the storm chasing in his rearview mirror, but he's back. He returns to the chase life. He's got Dorothy on the back of the truck. They're going to try and get her up in a tornado so that they can learn a lot more about atmospheric science. We'll learn more in the 10 seconds that we have in the past 30 years was his line. Everyone was happy and overjoyed. Everyone viewed that as a fresh start. I remember where I was when I heard about Jim Harbaugh being hired at Michigan. I remember making such foolish statements as Urban Meyer, boy, he's about to hear footsteps really quick. I even equated it, friends, believe it or not, I'm man enough to admit it, I even equated Jim Harbaugh entering the Big Ten via Michigan to Nick Saban entering the SEC via Alabama as it related to Urban Meyer. I thought Jim Harbaugh was going to have that kind of impact at Michigan. Well, uh, there is no need to do the spoiler alert here. We have seen him so far go winless against Ohio State. But that's only one chapter. That's only the very beginning. Everything's bright. Everything's rosy. It is sunshine and rainbows right now. And then we start to get a little bit into the movie, and Bill starts to flex. He wants to show he's not rusty, and so they get in their first tornado chase of the day. Very rare day where you get like half a dozen tornadoes out there near Wakita, Oklahoma. And so he grabs Helen Hunt's seatbelt, says, fasten your seatbelt, and he takes him off-road. Now, granted, this is only an F1, but F1s can still do damage if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jim Harbaugh flexed, too, just like Bill Paxton did to start this movie. Jim Harbaugh flexed. I was in Columbus, Georgia, when Jim Harbaugh went on his satellite campaign, his satellite camp campaign, to put a finer point on it. There I am in the newsroom one day, and Jim Harbaugh is doing a satellite camp in nearby Prattville, Alabama. It's just north of of, uh, Montgomery. And, oh, man, all the Southern folks were up in arms. I mean, they were grade A triggered by this. And then Harbaugh shows up on your local news, shirtless, running around in khakis. It's 95 degrees in Prattville in the summer, at least. And he's running around shirtless in khakis over there playing some kind of bastardized version of football. I'm not quite sure what they were doing. 
but everyone was bent out of shape. And Jim Harbaugh was flexing, and there were some people that were misguided enough to believe that the University of Michigan was about to fundamentally change recruiting in the South because Jim Harbaugh ran around with saggy nipples in Prattville, Alabama for the better part of an afternoon. Again, a spoiler, it didn't quite work out that way, although Michigan has made a little bit of noise. Nico Collins, for example, from Clay Chalkville, that's a big-time receiver talent that they ended up pulling. So it was not without merit. They ended up putting the kibosh on it, but it wasn't without merit. We continue to chapter three, because here come the clouds a little bit. As the story develops, Bill, back on the storm chasing scene, is reintroduced to his old nemesis, his old foe Jonas, Jonas Miller. He's a night crawler. They all started out together, but then Jonas went out and got himself some corporate sponsors. Remember why? Because he was in it for the money not the science. It sounds about like some of you trying to expand these conferences, by the way. Well, how does this parallel Jim Harbaugh? Well, Jim Harbaugh ran up against his old nemesis too. Just as Bill Paxton was reintroduced to Jonas Miller, the nightcrawler there, we also had Jim Harbaugh get right back in the middle of that Ohio State rivalry after being checked out for a while. And it hurt. And they got their nose bloody. And they were competitive, but they still came out on the wrong end. And so early on, we start to see a little up and a little down. We got a little ebb and a little flow. It's not supposed to be easy. We understand that, okay? It's early. It's still fine. We're still very early on in the tenure. And once we get Michigan built the way that Jim Harbaugh can build Michigan, and we've got everything under his thumbprint, it's going to be okay. It's a long game. Believe in the process. We'll eventually bypass him. And so what we need is we need the reset, right? And so one of the most beautifully constructed scenes in Twister or any movie is the timeout they take when they go to Aunt Meg's house. And if you've ever watched a Ronco Grill infomercial late at night and you just watch them do the set it and forget it and then they pull the finished product out of the oven and you just salivate and then you go to Crystal because it's 2 a.m. and there's nowhere else to go, that's what it was like watching those steak and eggs and mashed potatoes and Meg's gravy as its own food group, according to the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. That scene was great mouth-watering. And it was a reset. You got some bad tornado experience early in the day. That's cool. Sometimes you just got a reset. Well, what did Jim Harbaugh do to reset? Well, he took his team to Rome. They just packed up over the course of a spring, and they said, spring football, so yesterday. No, 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 no. We're going to Rome. We got a donor up here that's willing to fit the bill. I think it was like seven or $800,000. That's even more than Colin makes. And they go to Rome. And a lot of people were up in arms about it. I don't know why, but they were doing something different. It was the great Michigan football reset. We're going to brand ourselves. We're a national brand, and we're going to show you even maybe we can be an international brand. So while Bill Paxton enjoyed Meg's famous gravy, Jim Harbaugh just went to Rome and took his entire team with him. So this is where it really gets good. Because there is some drama that eventually arises. And it's domestic drama. It's the worst kind of drama. It gets really tough because they got to leave Aunt Meg's house early because they got one, F2, F3. They got to get on the road. It's going to be hilly terrain. And it's a jumper and it's tough and they can't get Dorothy up in the funnel. But something worse happens. There is a very dramatic and very raw scene between Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt right there as the sensors roll down the hill and the pack is wasted. And for the first time, we realize there is trouble in paradise. And there's a lot more going on here than just trying to chase tornadoes. That domestic squabble, that's the worst kind of squabble. And let me tell you what the worst kind of drama is for the University of Michigan. 
it's getting beat by Michigan State. And it's getting beat by Michigan State a couple of times in a couple of years. And I remember vividly, not the, oh, he had trouble with the snap game. I'm talking about a couple of years later, one or two years later, when they lost 14 to 10. Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton are standing there in the middle of a downpour. So was Michigan. John O'Corn at the helm under center, and they turned it over not one, not two, not three, not four, but five times in a monsoon, the likes of which the Amazon rainforest would be bashful at watching. And they lost to Michigan State in Ann Arbor, 14 to 10. Not only that, they proceeded to go four and six over their next 10 games starting that day. And that spanned over the bowl game and then into the next season. And that's really where things got uncomfortable. And if you want to pinpoint it now, there are a lot of different areas you can pinpoint, but that's where people really started to sour to a much larger degree than they had previously on Jim Harbaugh. And so you know how the next couple of years go. And we understand that eventually you're trying to get to a conclusion here. One way or the other, if you're a college football fan, I mean, if it's going to work out, great. If it's not going to work out, show me something definitively. And boy, this is where we crescendo. Because it's time, and it's finally time. We only got one Dorothy left. And Bill Paxton looks at Helen Hunt, and he says, we got to make it happen. This is it. Last time, and they go chase down that F5, and they cut up the Pepsi cans, and they weigh the pack, and then one of them gets wasted, and then he loads it in the back of the truck, drives the truck into the F5. Dorothy's flying, but we may be too. Because as EF5 tornadoes tend to do, it takes a jarring right turn and heads right for them. So what do they do? Well, they find some random pipes that go down about 30 feet, and they anchor to them, because if you do that, you might have a chance. And that's where they are. Now, here's the good part. They survive. And all's well that ends well. And not only do they win by surviving, they also make Dorothy fly, and it changes atmospheric science forever. And right now, that's where Jim Harbaugh is. I mean, that man stood on the podium last week and said, and I quote, we're going to beat Ohio State or we're going to die trying. And so they are absolutely at Michigan right now in the final scene of Twister. It was a happy ending there. But they just came off a two and four season at Michigan. Everything was sort of restructured to send a very loud message this past summer and this past spring and and remember the whole contract drama to say, we're keeping you here, but there is no long rope. Uh, We're not extending anything. We're not cementing ourselves into anything. You've got to get it done this year. Now, at least the good news is everyone gets it. The fans get it. I think the coaching staff gets it. There's a lot of pressure. You get paid a lot of money. It's a privilege to coach under that pressure, but that's where they are. Now, I hope for the sake of Michigan fans, that things turn out happy. But you got to go through that tornado to do it. You got to go through the Big Ten to do it. You're going to be an underdog against Washington. You're going to be an underdog a few times this year before you even play Ohio State. And there are several critical factors that have to fall into place here. Quarterback's got to get worked out. Hopefully, J.J. McCarthy gets to show you what he can do eventually. But it's not just a quarterback thing. They've got to get a lot faster. They've got to leverage the speed, the perimeter speed at wide receiver they have. They've got to do it. I felt and still do feel like Josh Gaddis may have been the right button to push bringing in as an offensive coordinator. But he's not walking into Alabama. He came from Bama. You walk into Michigan, you don't have four eventual first-rounders just chilling in your wide receiver room. That's a little bit different world. You walk into Michigan, you got to go find them yourself. And then, in Xavier Worthy's case, you got to make sure that they're on campus when you start the season. So, worthy or no worthy, Michigan's got enough horses to compete. They got to do more than compete because you're not paying the guy what you're paying him to compete. 
And you don't want to just compete if you're Michigan. So I'm sitting there watching Twister the other day, and I realized, my goodness, might I already know how things work out for Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. Uh, One final reminder, by the way, if you have never listened to the Twister soundtrack, that alone would convince you to watch the movie. So criminally underrated. But that was a little fun trip for me uh, because I'd be talking about Twister and college football even if you weren't watching. So thank you for watching. Remember to subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. And remember, there are a few things. All of these are free. And if you want the show to be free forever, this is how to do it. The following on Twitter and Instagram is great, at LateKickJosh. Also, subscribing and liking these videos on YouTube is great. And the five-star reviews on the Late Kick podcast, we are now top 10 in the world, not just in college football, but football in general. There's a lot of NFL podcasts out there, guys, and we are above a vast majority of them, thanks to you. So thank you, and keep trafficking us. And we will um, very quickly go to three shows a week for you. And at that point, you'll just have something from us every day. So until then, we're going to get out of here for tonight. For Director Colin, Noah, our entire crew down in Fort Lauderdale, I'm Josh Pate. Have yourselves a great evening, great start to your week, and God bless. moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.